Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. I sometimes tell my kids, um, at least not with intentional exaggeration and, and, and not with uh, not trying to be like overly self-flagellating, that I think that the the task I fail at most frequently and most egregiously is being a parent. And it's not because I don't think I'm a good parent. I think I'm a pretty good parent. But I think being a parent is really hard. And I think there's no thing that I do that's as important to me and which I uh, don't, which I fail at more regularly. Because it's so easy to... Um, I'm just laughing because this, this was supposed to be an easy set of doors and we're taking the like five advanced degrees back there who can't figure out how to, <laughs> I couldn't figure it out either. Let's see. Success. Yay. <laughs> Thank you guys. Um, it's a sacred obligation to raise children. It's really complicated. There's no guidebook. And I'm aware again, without self flagellating that I make some serious mistakes every day. Um, it's actually the other um, direction that Jewish law and Jewish culture is more to say. While there is material in particularly Masechet Kiddushin about a parent's responsibility for raising a child, it's not thought of as a mitzvah per se, right? It's certainly not thought of as a mitzvah to, to do nice things for your child or to help them. You have certain specific obligations, right? That's uh, that's known by some people. What are what are your obligations as a Jewish parent charge your child to teach them? Teach them how to swim. A Two trade. Others. Teach them a trade and Torah. Torah and Mary. Find them a right? spouse, right? Marimah, right. That's that's your primary obligation. I realize that there isn't any. There's not a microphone on the table. So let me bring one there so that if there's contributions, people can. So that that's the rabbi's um, kind of creating categories, not quite out of thin air, but not linked to Torah verses. There are no Torah verses that describe like a specific mitzvah that you have towards your children besides Vishinantam Levanecha. You should teach these words to your children. But in our parsha, even though your text she says Bishalach, that's a mistake, it's parsha Yitro. Next week's parsha that uh, David just read, we have the core verse from which we get the obligation to uh, honor one's parents. And even the word honoring one's parents is interesting because we're using, we're translating the word kaved, and we often translate the word kaved as honor. And maybe it does mean honor, maybe it doesn't mean honor. It's clearly something um, significant that you owe your parents. I say in many contexts that kaved is from the same uh, Hebrew word, Hebrew word that means heavy. So whatever it is that you owe your parents, it's a heavy, serious thing. Um, and I think I'm a pretty good son too, but I know I'm not a perfect one. And sometimes I go to the tradition to uh, remind myself, what is it I actually owe my parents? Guess what? According to Judaism, it's not love, whatever that word means. I do love my parents. The Torah does not demand that I love my parents. The Torah does not expect that I have a certain emotional reaction to them. That's a very modern notion that your obligations to someone might be emotional. I'm not against that, by the way. I'm a modern human being, and I think that my obligations to my children and my parents and my friends and my spouse do indeed involve emotions. That's a very modern, newfangled idea. And we can add that 
to some earlier biblical and rabbinic notions about what really a, a child's obligation is to his or her parents. So this is going to be a text study on exploring the multiple ways in which this notion of honoring one's parents has been understood throughout the centuries. Okay, the first source is the key source, the fifth commandment, depending on how you count them, of the Ten Commandments, the first source on your page. Does anybody still need one? Joey? <laughs> I have extras here. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, you shall, uh, again, we're going to translate it as honor your father and your mother. There's a famous midrash uh, that people, some people I know that later on in the Torah, it talks about fearing, having yirah, awe, and it says for your mother and for your father. So it reverses the order and the classic midrash, which is a little bit gendered, but doesn't mean it's completely inaccurate, is that since your natural inclination is not to have honor for your father, but fear your father, your father's put first in this verse. And since it's your natural inclination to, rever to revere your mother, but not fear her, your mother is mentioned first in that verse, right? To push against your natural inclination, whether or not that's individually true. Again, it's a little bit gendered, but I think it has some merit. Here it's honor your father and your mother. And we're given um, sort of a, either a, re a rationale or maybe even a promise of a reward. Some, one of the very few places in the Torah where there's a specific reward mentioned for doing a mitzvah. One of the others is the odd but beautiful mitzvah of Shiluah HaKen, of sending the mother bird away from uh, the nest if you're going to take the eggs. Uh, that also earns you long life. Either those two mitzvot are random, or maybe there's something joined between them, that this is about honoring the parental bond, and we as we kind of impute even to the fowl, even to the bird kingdom, a certain parental bond. And while you're entitled to take the eggs, you can't take the eggs in the presence of the mother bird because that would be a dishonor of that mother bird's maternal instincts. Maybe laman ya mecha, so that your days may be long. Al the land, asher That God on the land that God has given you. That's the classic verse. If the verse stood on its own and all you knew was biblical Hebrew, and you know that kabed gets rendered into whatever language you're speaking as something having to do with honor or heaviness, what might you think, if we think the Torah is, when it gives us a mitzvah, it's actually asking us to do something specific, what might you think the Torah is asking you to do based on this verse only? Alan? I'd say to make sure that you help support them in any way that you need. Okay. So maybe the honoring is right. Not the honor that you owe them as an eight year old or as a 12 year old, but on the notion that if the world goes the way as it ought to, which is that they will get old and get infirm and frail before you do that you owe a certain obligation to support them kind of in inverting the um, trajectory of care, right? It's, you ever want to humble yourself? Think about what your parents did when you were an infant or a toddler, right? And, and, and until one is a parent, one doesn't really know it, right? And sometimes I look at my parents and I realize that I've forgotten what it must have been like for them to raise me, right? So when we have the opportunity to take care of their vulnerability, maybe that's the core notion of kibud. Rosa, you're going to say something? <clears throat> Sorry to catch you mid-swallow. It's okay. We'll, we'll come back to you. Someone else? What might this verse mean, Gary? I'll, I'll if you can get the microphone, Tim, great, yes. but I, I keep forgetting to ask them for more microphones. When you're honoring, when you're doing good for your, for, as, as, 
you're doing good. You're sending your the parents' names forward. If they're if they're doing mitzvot and good things, that's an honoring of, for them. Great. So if the core purpose of Torah is to pass Torah onto the next generation, and if their obligation to you is v'shinan tam to teach the words of Torah, maybe kvod is living a life of Torah such that their teaching to you lives on. Is that what you were suggesting, Gary? Lovely. Rosa? No, I was going to say, this is assuming that your mother and father are necessarily worthy of being honored. Aha. So what Rosa's offering, and this is indeed taken care of in Jewish law, this is an assumption. Well, let's raise that as a question. Does the obligation to honor your parents obligate you whether or not your parents are deserving of honor? Then one might say, whose parents are not deserving of honor? And the answer is some people, right? Some people are children of abusive parents. Where this is mostly given treatment, Rosa, and Jewish law is not in the, in the fleshing out of the responsibility of honoring one's parents, but in the fleshing out of the obligations of being a mourner, an abilut. There's a lot of material written saying, to what extent does a child have an obligation to be an avel, an avela, a formal mourner for an abusive, cruel parent, Right. Do you say Kaddish for a cruel parent? Do you tear your garment for the death of a cruel parent? Some people terribly have cruel parents whose lives, uh, who made their children's lives miserable. It's a real question. I remember when I sat in the law committee for the conservative movement, there was an intriguing um, suggestion uh, about how to handle, an intriguing counterintuitive question about how to handle Avelut mourning for a a cruel parent. And because the, the question was, do you have to say Kaddish for the same amount of time? Some of you may know that the rat, did anyone know the rationale for why we say Kaddish for 11 months for a parent? Alan? It's to have the Nishama have an Aliyah, to have the soul of the parent uh, be accepted. Right. And why 11 months? Um, because it's, it was, it's the one year you don't want to do it for the full year because you think that they're so bad. That was going to be the issue. So it's one month less than that. Right. So if part of saying Kaddish is contributing to the ascent of the soul and the soul's, um, court case in the heavenly court, right? Your Kaddish is part of the testimony that's brought into the court case. And there's a notion that says the longest court case in heaven for the, for the most, um, you know, dastardly of a person is 12 months. It's never more than 12 months. So don't say Kaddish for 12 months. Say Kaddish for 11 months to suggest my parents' case is not going to be that hard because my parents' case, my parent was a righteous person. The case will be over soon. So the ingenious suggestion was for a cruel parent, say it for 12 months, right? To that extra month suggesting that I suffered while my parent was alive. I want my parents' soul not to be tortured in the world to come as it were. So I'm going to be a witness for a month longer. It was never put into practice, but I thought it was an ingenious way of using the material. Joe, you were going to say something? Yes. In fact, in the Lev Shalim, there's actually a meditation in memory of a hurtful parent on the left side, page 335 in Yitzker. Thank you. So I've to- I knew that and forgot that. So if people want to look at their own Time on 335 on the left side. Is that right? Yeah, the left margin, the very Great. left side. Thank you for that, Joey. You're welcome. Okay. Um, when we're trying to figure out what an obligation is in the Bible, the rabbinic craft is to connect words in one context, with another context, and then learn from B back into A. Okay. So, um, and, and in our case in Exodus, the verb kabed is given, but no specifics and no context. So, 
either we do or we don't know what the word means, but there's no way of linking it to a specific act besides this amorphous notion of kaveh. So look at the book of Proverbs. Now, this is not Torah, but this is Tanakh. And the book of Proverbs is not law. It's um, wisdom literature, right? It's kind of talking about sort of the way we're supposed to be, but it's not understood as the basis of law. Still, the rabbis look for connections. Same verb, kabed, except the object here is not apparent, kabed et Adonai. But it gives us a hint. Kabed Adonai, uh, have honor for God. Great. How? May Honcha, from your hon. Hon is wealth. Lucre, finances, right? Umereshit, and from the best of kol tfuadcha, all of your income, right? This goes back to biblical rules saying that you have to give, you know, from the from the best of your from your best of your crops when you're offering a sacrifice to, to God. So according to Proverbs, again, it's not halachic language, it's more um, wisdom literature. What what is at least one way? of offering kibud by spending, right? Uh, who said this? Like supporting by support by supporting. So if we translate that from the God context to the human context, what might kabed et avi mecha mean? If kabed has to do with spending money, what might it mean to say that that's your obligation to your mother and your father? Support them economically. Right. And again, that's an inversion of how your life began. Your life, every one of us on some level began with the notion of our parents contributing to our subsistence. Right. It's almost as if the first time you have an opportunity to fulfill this mitzvah is when your parents are needier than you. Interesting way of thinking about it. The first time you have an obligation, you, you, you have an ability to fulfill this mitzvah, if we learn from Mishlei, is when they lack and you have and you support them. And that raises an even more interesting point, right? Some people are blessed to have worked hard and accumulated a certain amount of wealth and they bequeath to the next generation, which means some parents die. They don't have to be fabulously wealthy, but not impoverished, not needing their children's financial support, which means some children according to this definition, might live their entire lives without ever really having the opportunity to observe kibud ava'em because their parents never need anything financial from them. It's not just giving them a nice present, right, on their birthdays. Interesting way of thinking about it. And if you look at source three, this is um, Tractate Kiddushin, page 30. And um, it actually, it uses the verse that we just read before. Tanu Rabbanan. The sages taught, Nemar, it says in our context, in the book of Exodus, <laughs> and it says in another context, the one we just read, excuse me, the same root, and then the Talmud says, the text compared or made parallel the honor due to a parent, the mother and father, and the honor due to the Holy One, the Omnipresent. And just as the honor due to the Omnipresent is through home wealth, so may it be that your honor due to your parents is in the same category. Uh, the second half of that just says that in the, in, later on, uh, when the Torah says that you're not only supposed to honor your parents, but have off them or fear for them, there's another place where um, the same obligation is compared to your relationship to God. So what we're supposed to do for God is supposed to be similar to what we do for our parents which brings us to a really interesting uh, exit off the highway, and then we'll get back onto the highway. Uh, source number four. 
Rabbi Nachum Meiri lived in France in the 13th, 14th century. He's one of the most beloved commentaries in the Talmud. He never wrote, as far as you know, a linear commentary in the Torah. But he's, you know, when you when you get to like level three in your yeshiva, you start studying the Meiri's commentary in the Talmud, and you and and that way you know you're achieving something. And um, this is his comment on the piece of Talmud we just read. Um, if you're a biologist or a physician, you know, science, just put that aside for a second. Okay. Just le- lean in to the part of this that is totally trouncing science, but, um, but ask yourself, what's the spiritual message he's getting to? Derech ha'ara amru. As a way of explaining this notion of comparing your relationship to your parents with your relationship to God, they said, shlosha shutafim yesh ba'adam. There are three partners in the creation of every human being. Aviv, the imo, the kadosh baruch hu. His father and his mother and the Holy One. Now you could say that line and it can mean a lot of things. It can mean spiritually, like your, you know, your parents give you, you know, raise you spiritually and hopefully the Holy One is deep in your heart spiritually. But the Meiri is talking about something physiological even though he was not a physician. Uper shuha nida. They explain this out in tractate nida and Brace yourself. Aviv Mazria Loven. The father contributes something white. Shemimenu, what comes from the white part of the man's contribution to creating a fetus? All the white or whitish parts of the body. Obviously, this isn't true. Lean into it. Atzamot, your, bo- your bones. Gidim, your sinews. Tzipornaim, your nails. Umoach Shabarosh, and the brain in your head. The loven shabayin and the white part of your eye, right? It's as if Meiri. I don't think, by the way, Meiri thought this happened um, biologically, right? I don't. I think science was advanced enough even back then. But he's saying a human being has white stuff and red stuff. Okay, the white stuff comes from, must be comes from the white contribution to the uh, to the fetus, um, and the red stuff imo mizraat odem. The mother uh, bequeaths or literally seeds the red stuff, shemimenu, or skin, uvasar, the flesh, vidam, blood, the sear. Interesting that, that, I don't know, maybe there were a lot of redheaded Jews back in France in the 13th century, um, or maybe the fact that most Jews' hair is dark-ish, so it's closer to red than to white. The shachor shabayin, right, the, the iris of the eye, the part of the eye that's dark. So if the mother has contributed the red stuff, and the father has contributed the white stuff for obvious reasons, right? What has the Holy One contributed? HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this, I love this section. Notenbo Ruach, the spirit, has no color. Uneshama, breath, which has no color. Uklaster Panim, the particular way that the face looks, right? We actually know genetically that it's exactly not the case, right? Your, the face looks like halfway between your mother's genes and your father's genes, but in a 13th century um uh, commentary on the on the Torah. That's the part of you that is divine-ish. Riyat ayin, not what your eye looks like, but the fact that you can see from your eyes. Wonderful idea. Like your mother's contributed to your your, your father contributed your eyeball. Your father's contributed the dark part. But what made that organ be able to see? It's got to be God. Ushmiat ozen, and the fact that your ear can hear. Again, doctors have a different explanations of it but a spiritual explanation of it it's got to be god and by the way pull back a second it's pretty remarkable that our organs do what they're supposed to do sometimes i actually get lost in my head when i think about what actually vision is 
right? Like we assume, I'm going to go on a tangent off a tangent. We assume that what we see with our eyes is what actually the world is. But that just can't be the case because other animals, their experience of vision is entirely different. And they're also convinced, like a fish that has an eye over here and eye over there is convinced in its own way that what it's seeing is what the world is. But what it's seeing is very, very different than what we're seeing. So we've convinced, I've convinced myself that my seeing you right now is exactly what it, what it actually is in an essential way. I don't know if that's the case, right? So the fact that our eyes can do that accord, and, t- and tell our brains that according to the Me'iri, that's God. Dibur Sfataim. Yeah, the fact that we have red lips and red tongue and white teeth might be from the men, the male and female contribution to the fetus. But the fact that that can produce speech, that's God. And the movement of our legs, knowledge, discernment, the haskel wisdom. It's, an, it's a medieval way of saying, how, how does consciousness get formed? And by the way, that's still boggling the mind of the greatest 21st century neuroscientists. I listened to podcast after podcast after podcast by Sam Harris, trying to figure out what is consciousness. We all experience it. We have no idea what it is, where it started from. The greatest doctors in the world cannot really explain how consciousness came to be. 800 years ago, they're asking the same question. It's got to be God. Your father didn't give you consciousness. Your father gave you bones. Your mother gave you flesh. God gave you consciousness. Okay, back onto the highway. I came across a text. I wanted to bring it um, back to notion of Kibbutz Avim. If we look at other places in the Torah um, that talk about relationships with mothers and fathers, we can infer what it might mean to show them kibud based on what we're told not to do in other situations. Source five. If you curse your father and your mother, you will surely die. Okay. So if cursing a parent brings upon the death penalty, then it might be that cursing, excuse me, is the, is the, is the inverse, um, is the antithesis of what we're supposed to be doing. So if cursing is the antithesis of what we're supposed to be doing, then by inference, what is it that we are supposed to be doing? Praising, Praising blessing, raising, raising the, um, the reputation of. It's very different than offering financial support. But that seems to be, um, you, you could reasonably infer that. By the way, just a little interesting um, uh, etymological game. Remember I said that kavod, honor, is from the word that means kaved, which means heavy. Mikhalel, kuf lamed lamed, um, most people understand, although you translate it as curse, what does the word actually mean? Take the second let lamed out of the root out of kilel, and you have kal. What does kuf lamed mean? Kal? Easy, light, the opposite of heavy. So it's interesting that we're obligated to heavy eyes our parents, and we are prohibited from light, you know, bringing down and making light of our parents. Most people think that three-letter roots that particularly when you have a three-letter root and the second letter is doubled, so kuf lamed lamed, it clearly comes just from kuf lamed. So to curse someone really means an over-diminution of them, an over and unwarranted lightening of what they deserve. Okay? So what's hey lamed? From halal, halal to praise? What's you know. well, interesting, hell in Hebrew um, can be related to a celebration. It's also in modern, I don't know the etymology, it's really, it's the spice cardamom, the hell, if you order Turkish, cafe Turki im hell, 
uh, you're asking for Turkish coffee with cardamom. I don't know why it means that. Um, but what's the base root of Hayil? I'm going to have to think about that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, look at back to Mishle. This is another possible expansion of what it means to honor your parents. We've gotten, you know, invest in them. Uh, or at least take them, take care of them financially, uh, raise their reputation because it's the opposite of cursing them. Look at Mishle. Shma Bani, listen, my son. Musar Avicha, to what has been passed over to you by your father. Bi'alti tosh torati mecha. And don't forsake, don't go away from the Torah of your mother. If this were our def- definition as a, what it means to express your obligation for your parents, if this were our core verse, what would that mean in common language? Honoring the values. Honoring the values, right? Someone said this before. Gary said it, right? You're, if your parents have devoted their lives to teaching you some things, what does honoring them mean? Living that way. Don't, don't go off the pathway, right? Do you have to be their clone? No. No society in history has expected any child to be a clone of their parent. But every society in some language has said that one of the things, what, what am I doing by raising my children? Just raising another human being? Literally another person that has arms and legs? No, I'm, I'm trying to raise someone that is imbued with values that are important to me. And therefore, the child's obligation to the parent is for the most part to live according to that person's values and not throw them away. And by the way, it hurts when your child does that, even a little bit. It hurts when your child does that even like slightly, even more so when they throw it away completely. Another verse that might help us understand what the obligation really is if you strike your mother and your father, you will surely die. Let's do the same game. If that is the antithesis of what you're supposed to do, then what is the thing that you're actually supposed to do? Okay, take it, like protect them physically, right? Not necessarily protect them financially, not necessarily live by their values, but if by causing them physical pain, that's the worst thing you can do, then maybe the best thing you can do is to make your parents comfortable, right? To be tender with them, to be gentle with them. We don't know if any of these are the exact right way, way, but it's using the clues within the tradition to try to get at what did the Torah mean when it said, okay? Look at Proverbs, look at uh, source eight, another possibility. If you steal from your mother and your father, the Omer ain't Pasha, and you say, yeah, that's not really a sin. The money was coming to me anyway, right? I was going to get the inheritance anywhere. It's an interesting way of saying it. That, that such a person is a friend to an ishmashkit, a one who destroys. It's descri- it's translated here as vandals, but literally ishmashkit, one who destroys. If you kind of like you know slough it off and say, yeah, I stole from my parents. Eventually, it was going to come to me anyway. That is considered to be um, a destructive act. So if we invert it, what's our primary responsibility to our parents to honor the fact that what they have belongs to them, and it belongs to them until and unless they give it to us. Okay. Um, one more attempt at trying to figure out something, and this is the one that maybe is the, is the most subtle, and the one that veers into the realms of emotions a little bit. This is um, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 91. And the reason why this verse is interesting, because it uses that same root, kabed, at the end of the verse. Ikra'eni ve'enehu. When he calls upon me, I will answer him. This is um, um, God, God referring to a human. When a, when a human being calls upon me, I will answer that human being. Imo anochi I am with such a person in troubled time. 
Achal Sehu, I'll rescue him. That's that root. If we translate it as I will honor him, it doesn't help us. But in context, it suggests that what does it mean to honor someone? To be available, to be present when they call, to be helpful in times of need. That's getting somewhere in terms of a practical way of understanding how do I fulfill my obligation to my parents? Particularly, how do I fulfill my obligation to my parents if they don't need my financial support? How do I fulfill my obligation to my parents if I am basically living their values? How do I fulfill my obligation to my parents if it wouldn't even occur to me to strike, to strike them and they're very comfortable? When, to, to, to be available when they call, maybe even anticipate their call, right? And be the one who steps forward into those moments. Okay. Um, let's go to source 10. What time is it? We have it like, is 546. Uh, like five more minutes. Okay. Um, this um, Rabbi Shai Held, who's one of the founders of Mechon Hadar, that wonderful egalitarian yeshiva and think tank in Manhattan. Uh, he wrote a Dvar Torah related to some of this material now nine years ago. Uh, does someone who has the microphone near them want to read what Rabbi Shai Held wrote? Joey, do you want to read it? Okay. Still other scholars insist that to pose such a question to the fifth commandment is asking too much of it. Pause. And by the way, what he means by such a question the question being, what does it really mean? Like, that's our natural instinct. The Torah says, honor your mother and your father. We want to know, well, what does that mean? And some say, don't ask that question. It means what it means. You don't have to go digging too deep. Keep going. Keep going. <clears throat> Peter Enns, for example, maintains that the Ten Commandments are consistently ambiguous. Peter Enns, by the way, is a Christian theologian and Bible scholar. And suggests that this is not the just the case for us but for the ancient israelites themselves meaning it's not just that when we read these verses we say gosh we moderns have lost the string and and maybe the ancients knew what the torah meant when it said honor your mother and father but we don't know what it means peter n suggests it may have been just as vague and amorphous and ambiguous back then intentionally so it doesn't obligate you to a specific set of acts but a way of being with respect to your parents. Go ahead. On N's account, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to reveal to the Israelites a bit of who God is, knowledge that must translate into appropriate behavior on their part. In other words, as glimpses into the nature of God and God's relationship with God's people, the Ten Commandments are not exhaustive pieces of legislation that account for each and every contingency and possibility. They are to be obeyed, but as to how, that is a matter of continual reflection by the Israelites as they continue to live and grow in the shadow of God's love and protection. It's a really interesting read, right? We should be asking the question, what does the obligation of honoring our our parents mean today? But we shouldn't expect that there's one or only one answer. And primarily, that list was not to obligate us to specific acts, but to introduce us to the God that we are supposed to be committed to. And this is a God that cares about your care for your parents. How? It's going to manifest in many different ways. This is a God that cares that you don't lie. This is a God that cares that you don't steal. This is a God that cares that you are expressing fidelity in a relationship, right? This is a God that wants you to understand that having some kind of a positive reaction to your parents is is a big deal. What it means in your situation, you know, figure that out. Almost. It's an interesting Christian response, right? Because Jews are always asking the question, well, what does it mean specifically? How how many ounces of the juice am I supposed to drink at Pesach before I fulfill my obligation? We get a little bit neurotic about that, but that's our tradition. The the Christian um, legal tradition is much more vague anyway, right? Turn the other cheek, right? So this is a Christian theologian saying, don't 
don't art scrollize if you get the reference, the obligation to honor your mother and your father. Just take it in. That's what God wants of you. Figure out the right way of doing it. It's an interesting counterpoint to some of our overly legalistic approaches to highly emotional things. Um, hold on, we can't let's get the microphone to Rosa. Um, a, a lot of situations don't fall in nice, neat, little clean packages. I mean, how many of us have had, I'm had listening. The, you know, we, we, we make this phone call to ask a vendor, some kind of a question, some, some business that we're dealing with some kind of a question and artificial intelligence comes on, you get these recordings and you know, you're, you're supposed to have a question that's in a nice, neat little category. And you're supposed to one, two, three, four, four, your, your question, the question you have doesn't fall into any of those categories. And somehow um, family relations, relations between people is often the same way. They don't often fall into nice, neat, little clean categories there's a lot of gray in between. I think so, it's a really helpful comment, Rosa. And I think maybe we can plot ourselves somewhere in between Rabbi Held's quoting Peter Enns, which leaves it as open-ended, important, ambiguous, but don't, stri- don't, don't stray from it. But you got to figure it out for yourself. And the overly uh, particular and picayune halachic way of looking at our obligations. We'll skip source 11, but you can go back to it on your own. It's another place in the Midrashic literature where it gives some specific examples. It's the rabbis trying to figure this out halakhically. Yeah, what does it literally mean that I have to honor my parents? I want to go to sources 12 and 13 because it deals with something that was brought up before, uh, not directly with a notion of a cruel parent, but what happens if it indeed is indeed the case that I, every human being has as the partners who contributed mother, father, and God, and it's both towards mother or father and God that we owe kibud, honor, and owe yira, awe. What happens when by honoring one, we're being asked to dishonor the other? And by the way, that's not so uncommon. What happens when something that your mother or your father asks you to do pulls you away from your sense of what your obligation is to God? The Shulchan Aruch, 16th century code of Jewish law, um, uh, anticipate that question. It's an interesting piece of historical insight because it suggests we might have this kind of fantasy that 400 years ago, all Jews were from, right? In Sfat, in the 16th century, the only reason why he would have felt the need to legislate this is if the phenomenon was present. So what does he say? This is source 12. Amarlo Aviv, Avor al Torah. Let's say your father says, go eat treif. Let's say your father says, you know what? Let's not go to Shul the Shabbat. Let's go to the game, right? Let's say your father, you know, has gone off the pathway and says, all those words of Torah, they're old, dusty, archaic concepts. We've got modern contemporary wisdom. Follow them instead. Bein mitzvat aseh, whether it's in the category of a thou shalt, no need to do a Seder this year. Bein mitzvat lota aseh, in the category of a thou shalt not, no need to avoid, you know, a labor on Shabbat or unkosher food. Even a mitzvah of their words, that is halachic speak for only a rabbinic obligation as opposed to a Torah obligation. That's a, that's a whole shiur on its own, but we have certain mitzvot that we understand we're obligated to do because the Torah tells them to, us to do them. And there are certain rabbinic obligations, things that we're supposed to do because the rabbis added onto it. A, a classic example of that is that the two 
obligations for Shabbat, uh, they've been turned into many, many subcategories, but the two primary obligations of Shabbat according to the Torah are Shamor at Yom HaShabbat and Zachor at Yom HaShabbat. So uh, protect the Shabbat by not doing labor and Zachor, remember Shabbat by saying Kiddush. The rabbis added on two other mitzvot, Oneg Shabbat, enjoying Shabbat. That's a mitzvah. It's not a Torah mitzvah. It's a rabbinic mitzvah. How do you do Oneg Shabbat? By having nice meals, serving nice food, uh, marital intimacy. That's fulfilling the mitzvah of Oneg Shabbat. And Kvod Shabbat, same root, by the way. How do you honor Kvod Shabbat? I don't know because I've never done it well. It means stopping what you're doing at 12 o'clock on Friday and spending the hours leading into Shabbat to getting everything nice and calm and tranquil. So the time Shabbat comes in, you're not running around like a chicken with their head cut off, but it's actually beginning properly. I am O for the last 500 of, of, of Shabbatot. But according to the rabbis, that is a mitzvah, not from the Torah, but a rabbinic mitzvah. So back at just Shulchan Aruch. What's that? I do it every week. I try to stop working. Dude. I Yeah, so I need to change jobs. Um, lo Yishmalo, don't listen to that father. Halachically speaking, you are supposed to disobey your parent. That seems to be like a violation of the fifth commandment. If what the thing your father or mother is asking you to do is to disobey God. In that conflict, God wins, not your parents, even though God is the one who told you to obey your parents. Okay. And then he goes a little further in the uh, 10 subparagraphs later. Um, so uh, source 13. Im ha'av that part isn't as interesting. Go to um, third line in Hebrew in the middle. Tamid Let's say a student wants to go to a faraway place. Shehu batuach, hu siman That the person is aware that if he goes to that place, he'll get a good sign regarding his learning. Meaning, let's say you live in a fashtunkin shtetl somewhere in, in the Pale of Settlement, or he's writing in, in the land of Israel. You're living in a, a tiny place where there aren't great sages. And you know that if you make the trek 100 miles in that direction, which is a big deal, and really leave your parents because there's no, you know, there are no Ubers to get you back, but you know that if you go there, you'll be able to study Torah, and then you'll be able to grow in Torah. Lifnei harav shasham, in front of the rabbi who's there. V'ha'iv aviv mochebo. And dad says, no. I need you here. We, our town is good enough. The local rabbi is fine. You don't have to flee. Even if the reason why the father doesn't want you to go is not because of his personal interest, but he's nervous that, yeah, there might be a great yeshiva there, but there's also great temptations there. There are idolaters there, and they're going to harangue you, and they're going to tease you, and they're going to pull you along. You do not need to listen to your father in that situation. The idea being, if you have an instinct that to go that way is honoring God, even if it means dishonoring or disobeying your father, even if the reason why your father doesn't want you to do it is because he's afraid that by going there, you're going to be pulled away from Torah, you're allowed to disobey your father in order to pursue Torah. Hagah. That means that we're now, uh, we switch from the author of the Shulchan Aruch, 16, late 16th century Tzfat, to the Ashkenazi gloss on this, written by Rabbi Moshe Isserlis in Krakow in the 1580s, so an Ashkenazi addition to it. Let's say the father wants to get in the way of the son. 
to marry the girl that he wants. Haben, that the, that the son wants to do. Ein sarich You don't need to um, uh, listen to the father. And that's, you might say, well, what does that have to do with pitting a parent against God? I think the idea is, if you want to marry this woman as a way of fulfilling your obligation to raise children and raising a Jewish family and that way honoring God, your father cannot stand in the way. You're allowed to go marry that person because that is your pursuit of a, of a godly life and you can choose God over your parent in that situation. It's not quite a cruel parent, but it's suggesting there are limits even beyond, even not getting to cruelty where your own obligations to the, your religious life and to, um, and to a world of Torah supersede your obligation to your parents. So there are a lot of things on the table here, right? Support them financially, make them comfortable, burnish their reputation, live by the values that they gave you, um, be emotionally available to them when they ask of you or even before they ask of you. And you can add in 50 others plus the one in source 11 that we didn't read and know, and hopefully none of us have or had parents that fell into that category. There are moments when on your own um, pathway to a life of goodness and life of Torah, it might be that your parents want to do A, will want you to do A, you want to do B. The reason you want to do B is because you want to live a life of Torah. And in that situation, Jewish law might actually stand on your side uh, and ask you to uh, dismiss what your parents are asking you to do. Um, those are all the sources. Comments, thoughts, reactions before we close up. Just than our parents were. Some some of us, uh, my parents didn't go to shul. I mean, they yeah. they were they identified as being Jewish, but they didn't go to shul. Yes, that, and, and that some changes. Some of us are actually more religious. That changes but, in both directions, heck, right? We wrestled with our parents. When you wrestle with God, you wrestle with your parents. You know, it's yes. And anyone else reactions to this before we close up? Wait once. Anyone on Zoom? Um, Rabbi. Yes, Tybal. It's, this was particularly lovely given that my father's roadside is coming up. Just saying. Thank you, Ty. And, and because my spouse and I didn't want, uh, he didn't want to acquire me, nor did I want to be acquired. So we did a contract. It's not a kasuba, but it's a contract valid, written by an Orthodox rabbi, Jewish law. And we used the basis as the Mishle. Part of the Which basis one? is. The Mishlei, because it says the mother's Torah, which is so unusual. Aha, uh-huh. got it. Yeah, just, just to disabuse anyone listening to the notion, even in traditional rabbinic law and the traditional ketubah, no one was acquiring anyone. They were acquiring something. It wasn't the person. They were acquiring fidelity, right? Exclusive, in, exclusive intimate rights. And I say that to every couple that I marry because I usually use the traditional ketubah. It's a misnomer to say that in a traditional ketubah, the man was acquiring the woman. He wasn't acquiring her. He was acquiring ex- exclusive access to intimacy, which is what, frankly, marriage always has been. But I understand the urge to even um, move away from that as a uh, as a standard for what marriage should be. Um, listen, this is a good exercise in general. We have lots of obligations that in their core verses are clearly important, but vague. We've got lots of material where the rabbis go down to 100, 1,000, 10,000 details about what we're supposed to do such that if we don't do all of them, we feel like a failure. The sweet spot, I think, is somewhere in the middle where we recognize that if we want to do right by the Torah's um, requiring of us and encouraging us to take certain things seriously, it makes sense to try to translate those into specific 
responsibilities, actions, and activities. And ultimately, there's going to be some um, uh, some way in which the specificity of that will be dependent on us, the situation that we fall into, who happen to be our parents, and what value is pitted against what value any given time, because things are never as clean as they might seem in the old books. Shabbat Shalom, and here's to all the great parents who produce all the great people in this room and on Zoom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.